Ecclesiastes 9 in your Bibles. Title of the sermon, it's the second part of our two-part sermon, Your Portion of Joy. Last week we spent our time together formulating a biblical definition of joy. We walked through many Bible verses. We began in Galatians chapter 5 with recognizing joy as a fruit of the Spirit. Then we, we considered uh, various passages, particularly in the book of Acts, where the concept of joy takes center stage. And we saw the elements of life and of circumstance and the elements outside of life and of circumstance that brought about great joy. And we centered on the reality that joy in every circumstance was found when God's people, born-again believers, began to see the power and the presence of God evidenced in their lives and in the lives of others. And so we recognize that joy was able to actually transcend circumstances so that, as Paul described the Thessalonian church or the churches of Macedonia, indeed, their joy increased with their sufferings. Because their sufferings, within their sufferings, they were able to see the presence and the power of God more fully and more readily. Therefore, their joy increased. So we developed a biblical definition for joy. It's a mouthful, but we said this. Biblical joy is a deep and genuine delight rooted in a recognition of God's presence and power in one's own life and in the lives of others, produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's because We recognized it was a fruit of the Spirit. Produced by the power of the Holy Spirit as he manifests himself in the life of a born-again believer, found by walking in the Spirit through a consistent personal relationship with Jesus Christ by submission and obedience. Again, it's a mouthful. If we want to just define joy, we could just do that that first little bit. Biblical joy is a deep and genuine delight rooted in a recognition of God's presence and power. power. We, We could stop there. But then we also, in this definition, find out where it's sourced, the Holy Spirit, and we find out how to get it by abiding. Abiding in Christ. You want joy? Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the first point. Mm -hmm. Abide in Christ. Allow the power of Christ to flow through you on a moment-by-moment basis. You're walking in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. You have joy. And we considered just briefly some things that strip us of our joy. We didn't consider that formally. What can strip us of joy? Well, really, self. Right? Right? The more we focus on self, the more we focus on what we want, the more we focus on the circumstances around us and how they're impacting us specifically, the more we'll be stripped of joy. What else strips us of joy? Sin. Because then we're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. And so the spirit of God cannot produce in us his fruit, which means it cannot produce in us joy. So we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to get our minds off ourselves and put it on our Savior. And thus we have joy. The point was this that we saw last time, that joy is not rooted. It's not an emotion rooted in circumstances. It's a perspective rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, in our identity as his children, in our confidence in his working, in our abiding, in our relationship. And so today we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And there are some beautiful things to be learned about in these verses. 
they all rest on a concept that life is filled with good and bad, with happiness and sadness, with positives and negatives. That there is a life to be lived above these feelings and circumstances, but that there's also a life to be lived within these feelings and circumstances. That life is a gift from God, and even in a deeply fallen world, a deeply sin-sick world, a world that is going to come with its share of sorrows, with its share of illness and its share of loss and its share of confusion and its share of uncertainties, that even in the midst of this world, not just above and beyond this world, but in the midst of this world, you can have joy. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 9. Solomon writes this, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous... And the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Now Solomon's first consideration is a consideration of context. And to understand this verse properly, I feel like we really need to to, to see what he's saying in verses 2 and 3. What he says in verses 2 and 3 help explain what he's trying to say in verse 1. So I'm going to come back to verse 1 in a moment. Let's walk into verses 2 and 3, talk about them, and then we'll use what we understand from verses 2 and 3, because the scripture is the best commentary on itself. We'll use what we understand from verses 2 and 3 to understand understand better what Solomon's saying in verse 1. In verse 2 he says this, all things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, uh, and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, as he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. So Solomon says, all things come alike to all, that both righteous and the wicked experience the same events, both the good and the clean and the evil and the unclean, uh, both to those who sacrifice and to those who do not. The same life events, generally speaking, happen to them both. Whether you go to church or whether you don't, whether you love God or whether you don't, whether you're moral or whether you aren't, you can find Elements of happiness, have a happy family, financial success, general contentment, live a long life. He continues in verse 3. He says, this is, excuse me, wrong way, this is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So Solomon says that this fact, that one thing happens to them all, that the same thing happens alike to all, is an evil. That from a simple, straightforward, one-to-one assessment, it is an injustice of the highest order, that people that would live a moral life could suffer the same indignities as those who don't, and that people who don't live a moral life might suffer the same prosperities as those who do. It isn't fair that people, regardless of their alignment with God's plan, can face the same good and bad. It isn't fair that people who do things God's way still suffer. It isn't fair that people who reject God's way can still prosper. The heart of man, Solomon says, is full of evil. Solomon describes the heart of men as full of madness. That Hebrew word literally meaning folly or or that which is um, lacking wisdom. Evil and folly. This is what is in the hearts of men while they live. And at the end of their days of evil and folly, they die. 
And no matter the scale of this evil and folly, Solomon says one event happens to all men. Now, let's put this in context for just a moment. We've seen this regularly throughout Ecclesiastes, right? This is not the first time Solomon has talked about the fact that good and evil happens to both the just and the unjust. And we see it in other uh, um, books of the Bible as well, particularly the book of Job. But we do need to have some context here. Because... We know by scripture and experience that all things being equal, a life of righteousness is a life superior to the wicked, isn't it? All things being equal. I go to the jail every week and I sit across from people. I grew up in a Christian home, have been in church regularly since before I can remember, Uh, had parents who loved me and protected me. And I sit across from people who grew up mostly in fatherless homes. That's one of the biggest trends of people in jail and prison. Mostly in fatherless homes or inactive fathers in their homes who who were not regularly um, taught the things of the word of God, who were not taught the gospel, who have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, who who do not have a moral base and a moral foundation for life. And there's a, a definite advantage coming to the person who is moral as opposed to the one who is not. There have been things that I have been blessed to avoid in this life because I have lived a moral life, as opposed to those who have lived an immoral life. Their bodies have been um, devastated by drugs and by alcohol and by a loose living, and they, uh, they have uh, struggled to find places to live consistently, and they have uh, difficult relationships, and so they've got anxiety and depression and all of these things because uh, they have nowhere to turn and they have no hope and they have difficult um, uh, circumstances. So a life of righteousness avoids many of the pitfalls of this world. And Solomon's not saying that that's not true, okay? That that even a person who is an unbeliever who doesn't believe in God, if he will live by the moral dictates of the word of God, if he'll live by the the general law of God written on a man's heart, there will be benefits to him. Solomon's not denying that. That a life of temperance and peace and of patience and of rest comes through morality. But that isn't Solomon's point here. A life of righteousness might spare us from the mistakes of the will. In other words, if I have some general moral code in me, I might be spared from the the mistakes of falling into a lifestyle of a degenerative lifestyle. But, as we've mentioned, it's not going to spare me from illness necessarily, is it? It might spare me from illnesses brought on by loose living, but it's not going to spare me from illnesses brought on by life. How many of us know a good, godly, righteous person that's suffering from the same cancer as the unrighteous? How much of us know the good, godly person who has had financial struggles just like the unrighteous? That's Solomon's point here. It will not spare us from losing loved ones, will it? Your loved ones are going to pass away just like the unrighteous. It will not spare us from being bullied or abused or attacked. You'll be bullied and and abused and attacked just like the unrighteous. It will not spare you from a house fire. It will not spare you from a natural disaster. The hurricane that took place in in Texas did not wind around churches and Christians, nor the one in Florida. All things being equal, there is a moral advantage, but the problem is all things aren't equal, are they? 
We don't live in a world of, uh, of all things being equal. We live in a world that sins sick. We live in a world that is fallen. So bad things do happen to good people. Bad people can have pretty great lives. I remember in Florida, I ministered at an assisted living center there went once a week, and there was a man there named Mr. Boyd. When I ministered to him, it was from his, uh, he was from 93 to 95 years old when I ministered to him. I would go to his room every week. And every week he would, he was a, he had been a college professor and his room was just full of books and knickknacks from all over the world. What he'd done is he learned very early in his, his college tenure that if he announced that he was going on a trip that summer, a bunch of college students would want to go with him. And then his way would be paid for him. So he did this every summer. He announced a trip. He didn't know where he was going, but he just got a book, read up on it, announced he was going there, that he'd be the guide. A bunch of college students said, I want to go too. They all paid. They paid for him to go as well as the sponsor. And he traveled the world. And he would sit down with me every week and he'd say, Jamin, he'd say, if I have one, every week he'd say the same thing. If I have one bit of advice for you, it would be to travel. And I'd sit down with him and I'd say, but Mr. Boyd, you don't believe in God. He'd say, no, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any of that stuff. I don't care about your religion. And I'd say, I'd I'd try to talk talk to him about the gospel. And he'd say, well, here's the thing. I have no regrets. I lived a good life. I traveled. I did everything I wanted to do. I have no regrets. What do you do with that? Well, it doesn't change the fact that there's an eternity, Mr. Boyd. And all of those, all of those trips around the world, all of those knickknacks you bought, one of which he gave to me, I've got it on my shelf at home, a little vase. It's not going with you, Mr. Boyd. Right? But in this life, he had no regrets. He traveled the world. He did everything he wanted to do. He had a great time. That's that thing that Solomon's talking about. He lived to be 96, 97 years old. And yet there are people who are righteous and who love God and who have consecrated themselves to him who die young. Who never get to travel the world. Who never get to see everything they wanted to see. Solomon says this is an evil that is in the world. Because of sin. We live in a world where the hearts of men are full of evil, Solomon says. Where as long as men live, their hearts are naturally full of evil. And then they die. And that's going to be a perspective that's going to carry over into verse 4. But we're not quite there yet because we need to go back to verse 1 now. Let's talk about what Solomon said in verse 1. He said this, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Knowing that one event happens to the just and to the unjust, to the righteous and to the unrighteous, where does that leave the righteous? Right? And this is where wisdom must come in. Because the righteous man understands something about life. What, what we just said, what, what I would always say to Mr. Boyd, that life is bigger than life. Life is bigger than just this temporal existence. That there's more to life than what we see, what we feel. That the things that we see and that we feel in this life, that those chairs that you're sitting in, that the food that you eat, that the clothes that you put on every day, that you can feel, that you can touch, that your senses can perceive, there are things that are beyond the senses that are just as real. And there is an eternity awaiting each one of us that is not just as real, but if we can really think of it in wisdom, is far more real than this life. 
Because this life is but for a moment, and then it's gone, and then there is an eternity awaiting us. There's a higher purpose. There are greater things going on than just the things of this life. And that purpose, that greater existence, it is as real as anything on this earth, but it is indeed beyond this earth. The rewards of the righteous don't necessarily exist in this life. They exist in the life to come. The righteous don't choose righteousness because of any necessary benefits in this life. There may be some. The natural benefits of morality and of doing right. In this society, they're there. In Syria, you follow the word of God and you're going to have your house burned down and your head chopped off. In this society, in this culture, there are some benefits to righteousness, to be sure. But whether they're there or they're not in this life is not the point of righteousness. The point of righteousness is that there's a life to come. The point of righteousness is that there's rewards on the other side of eternity. With this determination to live a life of righteousness today must also come the wisdom to understand the effects of righteousness not just upon today but upon eternity. The works of the righteous, Solomon says, are in the hand of God. You do right for God's sake and you trust God's promises that they will abound unto your rewards. But then notice what else Solomon says. He says, you can't know either love or hatred by that which is before you. You cannot judge God's favor on your life by your circumstances in this life. This is such an important concept. Again, I come across this all the time at the jail. They're having a hard time. Things aren't going well with their court case. And they say something to the effect of, obviously, God's angry at me. And they are they are attributing one-to-one the difficulties in their life with somehow God's favor or God's rejection of them. But we cannot judge God's favor and God's rejections by our circumstances. We might be able to judge our, our choices for sure. May I, may I connect this to our reality here? We cannot say that God loves us just because we're healthy and wealthy. I cannot look around at every healthy and wealthy person and say this is, this is evidence of God's favor upon them. And I cannot look around at every sick or poor person and say this is God's anger upon them. That's what Solomon is saying here. And by the way, the book of Job is entirely about that, isn't it? The book of Job is about the fact that Job, being a righteous man, was still suffering. Not because he'd done anything wrong or because God was angry at him, but because God wanted to test him. And because God has every right to do that. We cannot judge love or hate by that which is before us. And this is why we considered verses 2 and 3 first. We cannot judge love or hate by that which is before us because in this life the same events happen to the just and to the unjust. But that doesn't mean there isn't a difference, folks. That doesn't mean there isn't a difference. You can't look at this life and say, well, if the just and the unjust are going to have the same things in this life, then I guess I might as well just live the way I want. Do what thou wilt. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And we cannot say that for this very reason, that there is a life to come. If you believe that, then that will change the way you live today, not because of the effects on today, but the effects on tomorrow. So, here it is where we begin to connect to Ecclesiastes 9 and joy. 
joy even when circumstances aren't exactly what we would want them to be. Even when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. The realities of eternity, a perspective of long-term investment, can provide for us a deeper and a genuine delight can provide for us true joy in the midst of any circumstances. Continuing in verse 4. I'm going to read verse 3 again so that we can walk through and and continue in the context. But verses 3 and 4 say this. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Man is evil. The natural heart of man is fully set to do evil. We covered that already. And yet, while men live, Solomon says, there is hope. While men live, there is opportunity not just to to find success today, but to store for tomorrow. As long as you are living, there's an opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. The illustration Solomon uses in order to um, make his point here it was actually a proverb of the day. It was a Near Eastern proverb. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, in order to understand this, we need to understand how the Near Eastern cultures see dogs, or at least saw dogs of the day. Uh, to us, dogs are companions. To us, dogs are friends. To us, dogs are something of value. This was not so in the mind of Middle Eastern culture. Dogs to them were mongrels. They were beggars. They were, they were, they were annoying to say the least and this mindset we can see even in the days of jesus christ in matthew chapter 7 verse 6 jesus said this give not that which is holy unto dogs neither cast ye your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you don't give that which is holy that which is set apart that which is special unto dogs here now in our culture um, people give dogs good food Right? Uh, dogs are valued in our culture. And I'm not trying to offend you if you're one of the people that does this. Uh, my, my mom is one of those that does this. She makes this, this amazing meatloaf for her dog. And I sit there and I think, wow, you know, that could feed, that could feed a family here and you're giving it to your, your little dog. But, but you know, whatever. Okay. But that's how our culture is. Our culture highly values dogs. They're man's best friend. Uh, you put bumper stickers on your cars. You put it on your doormats. We have one of those doormats. We don't have a dog, but it was here from the people that own the house before us that wipe your paws, you know, and everything is, you know, it's showing that we have dogs and we love dogs and dogs are special. This was not what Jesus thought of dogs. This is, and I'm not saying that we need to think like Jesus. It's a cultural thing, right? It's a cultural thing. They, they saw dogs as not worth anything worthwhile. Don't give dogs good food. And of course, dogs, uh, we'll talk about in just a moment, was also an, an analogy, a metaphorical use as well. And then he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. You don't take things which are valuable and give them to those kinds of beasts that cannot appreciate them or do not need them. So metaphorically, Jesus says this in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 22. Uh, or Jesus isn't speaking initially, but the, the text says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet 
the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So the concept of a dog was a derogatory term that was regularly used of those who were by, by the Jews of those who were not Jews. They considered them to be less worthy or, or, or less civilized, and so they would call them dogs, derogatorily implying that they were less civilized or less human in one sense. Not saying that they were dogs, but that they were as dogs and that they were mongrels. They had mongrel qualities. They were useless. They were beggars type idea. And so Jesus, when this woman comes, says, it's not appropriate for me to take the blessings which I'm supposed to give to the children of Israel and to give it unto those who are without. And he uses this this analogy of children. Don't take the food that you would normally give to your children and give it to a dog. And she says, well, yes, Lord, but in faith, she says, even the dogs eat of the crumbs of the children's table. And he sees her great faith and he he um, uh, blesses her and, and casts the devil out of her daughter because he, as Jesus always does, responds to faith, right? He always responded to faith. And uh, so what we find here, though, is this, this metaphor that shows us just how the culture saw dogs, mongrels, useless, and beggars. Now, that's the one side of this, right? That a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now let's contrast that with how the Jewish mind, how the, the Near Eastern mind saw lions. Eger wrote in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 30, a lion which is strongest among beasts and turneth not away for any. Now he's going to go make a point. It's a proverb. He's going to make a point through that. But the point that we're looking for is this. They saw the lion as the strongest among beasts. They saw them as courageous. They saw them as noble. They saw them as strong creatures. Solomon would write in Proverbs 28, verse 1, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Bold, powerful, dignified, noble. That was the picture of a lion. Now, if any Jewish mind was going to say, which is the better animal, which is the more noble animal, the dog or the lion, I think even the American mind would say the lion, right? It's the bigger. It's the stronger. It's the more noble creature uh, from a certain point of view. Now, again, we have our loyalties to dogs, so that might not always be the answer, but that would have always been the answer in the Middle East. But here's the thing. If you have a living dog and a dead lion, the living dog wins out every time. doesn't matter how much weaker, how much more useless, the living dog will always beat out the dead lion because the living dog is alive and the dead lion's dead. Now, when taken in the context of hope for the living, sinful nature of mankind, Solomon seems to be stating here that as long as man draws breath, even if he's not a good man, even if he's just a dog, even if there's not much to commend him to anyone or to anything, as long as he is alive and draws breath, there's an opportunity for the wicked heart of that man, for the uselessness of that man to find some measure of repentance and so to find joy in this life. That though even uh, evil often prevails, it is fleeting and it ends in death. But even among that evil, there is a chance that man can be redeemed and so to find in this life some use. Something that will last for eternity. We understand this as we continue. For the living know not that they shall die. Oh, excuse me. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. 
The living have an advantage because they know they'll die. This echoes the concept which Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 12. He said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. When you know that you're going to die, it gives you perspective, right? And every man at some point comes to the realization that he's not, he's, he, he's not going to live forever. Our young people, they don't really think of that much. Teenagers, you know, they're kind of in the prime of life. They don't think of that much. But then as you start to get older, your body starts to break down. You realize that this thing is not going to last forever. It's going to end. And what that ought to do is give us perspective, right? Perspective on life. But the dead don't know anything anymore. Their course is finished. They have their rewards. What's done is done. They can no longer experience the joy from living. They can no longer build up treasure in heaven. Their love, their hatred, their envy, everything that they did in this life for themselves, everything they did stays here. It doesn't go with them. The only things that can go with you are the things done for Christ, the things done in faith. But those that live still have hope for storing up for eternity. Hope of seeing sinful hearts cleansed and redeemed. And through this hope, as we'll consider in the next life, we can live in the circumstances that we find in joy. We can have a portion in this life that goes beyond just what is under the sun and thrive in the things that God has given to us. So what is Solomon's advice? He gives us four areas where he says, have joy. Verses 7 and 8, he says, go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments always be white, and thy head lack no ointment. Food and clothing are some of the most basic necessities of life. They are also two things which if a person lacks them, it truly classifies them as impoverished. But take careful note that these two things are things which Jesus told us in this life he would provide for us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. But seek, uh, excuse me, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And so God has promised to provide for those who would seek first the kingdom of God, these most essential and basic necessities of life. But what Solomon is saying here is, look, if you understand perspective that you're going to die, that this life, that the good and the evil happens to us all, and you recognize and can live above that perspective, understanding that there's a God in heaven who loves you and and understanding that there are treasures that can be stored in heaven, If you can have this kind of a perspective on life, then whether you're eating the grand banquet food or whether you're eating the microwave dinner, you can delight in the reality that God has taken care of you and that God is good. So eat with joy, Solomon says. So drink with merriment. As... as, um, Paul would say in Philippians, we already mentioned it, for I have, in in my prayer this morning, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Why? Why could he be content? Why could he have joy in all of his circumstances? Because he understood that life was bigger than circumstances. That we can serve the Lord on our microwave meal just as well as we can serve the Lord on, on banquet food. And that the riches in heaven are not going to be dependent upon the riches of this earth. 
And we know this. So have joy. Doesn't mean you're always happy to eat that stuff. My children aren't happy every time their plate is put in front of them at every meal. Some meals they say, but I don't like this food. Some meals dad says, but I'm not a big fan of this either. But you know what? God has provided. He's good. And one way or another, there are bigger things, aren't there? There's, there's an eternity. And the things in this life are just the things in this life. And so, Lord, thank you for these things. To whatever degree I have them. And to whatever degree I don't, thank you that you're so good to me. That I'm alive. That I'm okay. That you, that, that, that you, you've gone to prepare a place for me. And that you'll come again and receive me unto yourself. That where you are there, I may be also. And have joy. He says, let your garments always be white and your head lack no ointment. In other words, you may not have all the clothes in the world. You may not have all the opportunity, but for the days that you are on this earth, keep your clothes clean. (laughs) Keep yourself smelling good. In other words, be diligent to appreciate what you have. Don't just walk around in destitution because you don't have what other people have. You're not going to take care of what you do have. Because you don't have what other people have. You're not going to appreciate what you do have. Because you don't have what other people have, you're going to be sure that you show that. No. Appreciate it. Take what you have and do the best you can with it. And then praise the Lord. And lay up treasure in heaven. Enjoy the little things because you know that there's as much a gift from God as anything. And this wisdom... This knowledge, this understanding of bigger purposes, of more important things, it frees us to appreciate life as it's lived right now and to not be so stuck on what we don't have that we forget what we do and to not be so stuck on what other people have and what we want that we forget what we have and what, how God has blessed us. With my little girls, we uh, before we eat, we typically pray before the meal. But we also, um, and, and my boy, I've got a boy now too. Um, I've had him for three years, but I still often say my little girls. Uh, with my children, um, we, we pray before a meal. And I, I often tell my children, remember, there's no place in the Bible that requires us, thou shalt pray before thou eat. It's, a, it's something we see ex- exemplified in the Bible. They thank the Lord before their food. But why do we do it? Because it reminds us to be thankful for the food. It reminds us to be thankful, even in this society where uh, there's food everywhere. It's plentiful. That it's not like that everywhere. And that God has been good to us. So we see the first two. Food. Let your garments be white. Anoint yourself. (laughs) Make sure your head lacks no ointment. Because life is a gift from God. So take joy in it. Verse 9. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. We talk about looking at food, looking at clothing, looking at the things we have and being discontent. We also live in a culture and a society who look at the companions they have and become discontent. Don't we? Solomon says, you may not be in, a per- in perfect relationships, but can you live joyfully with the wife of your youth? Can you recognize that companionship is a gift from God? 
And to whatever degree it's great or it's not great, it's perfect or it's imperfect, can you recognize that God has blessed you with companionship? Solomon says it is our portion in this life and in our labor. The privilege of living for, working for someone other than ourselves. The privilege of investing in those other than ourselves. Now, Proverbs 18 verse 22 tells us this. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. The man who finds companionship with the helpmeet who is a wife finds in her a good thing. Notice it doesn't say whoso findeth the prettiest of wives findeth a good thing. Notice it doesn't say whoso findeth the most talented of wives findeth a good thing. Notice it doesn't say whoso findeth the wealthiest of wives findeth a good thing. It says whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Now we've talked before about the concept of singleness. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul tells us that singleness is a blessing from the Lord as well. That those who have been blessed by God with uh, not having a compulsion to marry so that they can wholly give themselves to service as unto the Lord is, is a good thing. It's a noble thing. It's a right thing. And in many ways, Paul says in First Corinthians 7, it is superior even to, to, to wedded life, spiritually speaking. He compelled anybody who could, especially for their present state of distress, anybody who could stay single to stay single so that they might devote themselves wholly to the Lord. But even among those who are not um, married or, or, or may, maybe don't intend to get married, the principle of companionship doesn't change. We need fellowship, don't we? Which is why the local church is such an important part of the Christian life. Because you need fellowship. Because within the church we find people to invest in, people to live for, people to work for, people to invest in us, people to weep when we weep and to rejoice when we rejoice. We find family. And indeed, this is exactly what Jesus promises to those who will live for eternity. He said in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. What's Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying that those who would be willing to give up the physical attachments of this world for the sake of Christ will find in the body of Christ unto whom they will go and serve and invest more. Now, my in-laws are here this week. My my mother's, uh, my 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 wife's mother and father, and we're happy to have them. We're so thankful that they are, are a godly uh, couple, and and they love the Lord, and they support us, and we have a good relationship with them, and we love that. But in many ways, my wife and I had to leave all of that to come up here. My wife is from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm from De- uh, Denver area in Colorado, and so we're a far we're, we're far away from family. So we had to leave some of those things to come up here. But do you know what we found when we got up here? Dozens of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and houses through our church family. That's the idea. And then in the life to come, in the world to come, excuse me, eternal life, the blessing is great. And to whatever degree we are blessed with companionship, particularly Solomon focusing in on the marriage life here, have joy. But pastor, you don't understand my marriage. It's so imperfect. Life is imperfect. Good things happen to the righteous and to the unrighteous. 
Bad things happen to the righteous and the unrighteous. The same thing happens to them all. You're not the only person in this world that has a, a relationship that takes work. But can you recognize that God has blessed you with a spouse? Can you invest in it? And can you have joy in your spouse? Can you have joy in what God has given you? Can you have joy in the companionship within which you you, you operate? You're called to. It's not supposed to be dependent upon circumstances. The joy is supposed to transcend the circumstances. One more, and we must continue, uh, hasten on this morning. Verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Did you know work is a blessing from the Lord? We all have different skills and abilities. We all have all sorts of skills, skill sets in this room, interests, abilities represented. And whatever it is that your hand has found to do, Solomon says, joy in it. Do it with all your might. Now, I didn't say enjoy it, nor did Solomon, right? Not everybody has a job in here that is the job that they would have chosen, right? Not everybody, when they're 12 years old and they say, I'm going to grow up to be up, got that, right? Sometimes a person has to say, well, it's time to grow up and get a job to take care of my family, and I'm just going to do what needs to be done, And so you get that job and you live in that job and it provides for your family and it's not great and it's not happy all the time and you're tired and and it wouldn't be what you have chosen. But you know what Solomon says? You can still joy in it. Why? Because God has used something to provide for you and to provide for the ones you love. You're blessed with work. You are blessed with intellect. You are blessed with abilities. And for every person that may have a better position than you, have a better job than you, may be better than you in any given field, how many people are there who would love to be able to do what you do? How many children lie under a headstone in a cemetery who would have loved to have had an opportunity to live with whatever limitations you might have? Whatever pains you might endure? In the grave, there is no work, Solomon says. In the grave, there is no knowledge. In the grave, there is no wisdom. And sure, these are temporary things, but you know what? Enjoy it. Joy in it. Recognize that God has given you something for your good, that he has blessed you. Rejoice in what you are, in who you are, in where you are. Find joy and deep and genuine delight in whatever your hand finds to do because God's bigger than it. So Solomon says in verses 11 and 12, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time. When it falls suddenly upon them. Now, in the world, generally speaking, the model of the world is first prize goes to the fastest, the strongest, the wisest, the smartest, the most skilled. And in the world's way of thinking, your happiness and contentment rest upon these things, right? In the world's way of thinking, the team that wins the Super Bowl is happier than the team that doesn't. In the world's way of thinking, the person who wins the gold medal is happier than the person who wins the silver, who's happier than the person who wins the bronze, who's happier than the person who doesn't get a medal. But regardless of where you will live, regardless of how you live, you will die, right? 
Time and chance happens to all of us. For every person that is uh, is excellent at something is another person who was also very skilled, but time and chance, they got into that car accident or they had that disease come upon them or whatever it might be, and their ability was cut short. Some of the best, the wisest people and the fastest people and the strongest people in the world are, are, are not actually the people in the Guinness Book of World Records. Because there were people who had their lives cut short by war, who had their lives cut short by illness, or had their lives cut short by famine, who would have been far superior to them in any given way. The point is this. In God's design, joy is found not in your circumstances or your accomplishments, but in your God. In God's design, joy and contentment can exist in you with all thanksgiving, regardless of whether you're better than everyone else or not. And as you, with all of your might, love and appreciate the joy or the things of this life and joy in the things of this life, you will find contentment. But most people don't live this way, do they? Man doesn't know the time of his death and most men are snared in the evil of this time. Most men are discontent because they live apart from the joy of the Lord and they find their joy only in the things that they can get. And when this life is all that you have, every man must achieve in order to find some level of contentment. But we can live beyond that, on a higher plane, and find our joy and our contentment in something greater, more eternal. And so I ask you one question this morning, just one. Do you live in joyful contentment? We've walked through quite a bit of the book of Ecclesiastes now. We're in chapter 9. You've heard Solomon say time and again that the things of this life are in and of themselves little more than vanity and vexation of spirit. Lacking that which is necessary to produce lasting satisfaction. That's how we define vanity. But we've also established time and again that Solomon encouraged us to enjoy this life. He's not saying so don't live this life. That's not what he's saying. Enjoy life. How do we do it? How do we live in joyful contentment? Well, we do so by assuming a perspective on life whereby we understand that what we have, little or much though it may be, is a blessing from the Lord. And I'm blessed to serve God with the time that he has given me, in the circumstances he's given me, with the health that he's given me, with the job that he's given me, with the family that he's given me. And so I will live in joy. I will determine to have joy. It might not always be happy. It might not always be a, 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 a garden of roses. I might not always enjoy getting up and going to work. I might not always joy, enjoy coming home. <laughs> but you know what? I can have joy. I can have joy above it. I can say, Lord, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for life. Thank you that I'm not yet in the grave, which means I still have time to build up treasure in heaven. And this takes real determination, doesn't it? It takes real perspective. It takes real faith. We live in a society and a culture which fully embraces Solomon's claims in verse 3. That the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And then afterward they go to the death. And one of the defining characteristics of this type of culture is discontentment. Because it's a selfish culture. It's a me-driven culture. And wherever culture is driven by self, it will be driven by discontentment. There's an idiom that we use 
The grass is always greener on the other side. The idea of this idiom is that people are always looking at others, their circumstances, and comparing themselves and wishing that things were different. We look at others and say, why can't I be like them? And they look at others and say, why can't I be like them? And they look at others and say, why can't I be like them? Are you living in a grass is always greener mentality this morning? Are you so busy wanting what others have or wishing for things that you don't have that you have been stripped of your joy in that which you do? The symptoms of discontentment are crippling in our society. Depression and divorce and debt and suicide are all through the roof because people are so stuck on themselves and on their circumstances. All of these are at epidemic levels in Western culture. A society that is crippled with discontentment, that is crippled with lack of joy. And it leaves you in a position where you rest wholly under the circumstances which surround you. And this can lead to emotional instability where your day, your feelings, your perceptions, everything is driven by how you perceive circumstances at any given moment of time. So, so we spoke last time about the emotional roller coaster, where our emotions and our spirituality are driven by the circumstances. So when things are going well, we're on a high, our emotions are on a high, our spirit is on a high, we're, we're doing good with the Lord, the Lord is good, we love Him, all of that. And then when things sink and they go low, then all of a sudden God has abandoned us and uh, we don't have anything and our emotions are, and then we're sna- snapping at everybody around us and, and nobody can talk to us and everything is in the doldrums and everything is gray and we're, we're doing this all the time. Each one of those peaks and valleys turns your attention more and more to yourself, right? Each peak is a time to look into myself and be so unhappy. Each valley is a time to look into myself and see how happy I am. And it's all about self. And as you become more self-focused, things only get worse. And you become more and more unhappy. And people say you just need to love yourself more. So people keep trying to love themselves more. And they're loving themselves into deeper discontentment. And you become convinced that the only thing that can make you happy is finding the right set of circumstances. So you leave your current spouse to find a new spouse. You leave your current family to find a new family. You go get more money. You go get more stuff. You go get a new house. You go get new everything so that you can try to find the circumstance within which you will be fulfilled. Solomon says, look, it doesn't work that way. Don't go looking for fulfillment. Find fulfillment in what God has given you. That's where joy is found, folks. Joy is not found in being able to go out and buy everything that you want. Joy is not found in having the knight in shining armor or the princess in the castle. Joy is not found in those things. Now, if you found those things, praise God, delight in them. But that's not where joy is found. Joy is found in living in light of what God has given you. The abilities, the talents, the circumstances, the health, everything that God has given you. Live in light of it and find joy. The solution is not your circumstances. It's in the God that rests above your circumstances. So that when the events that face both rich and poor, both healthy and sick in this life are placed before us, when we see these things that happen to us all, we react with confident contentment of knowing that the things which God has given to us are the things which God has given to us. And we'll joy in them. So we went to this slide secondly last week. That what joy does is it lives above the roller coaster. And it 
when we focus in on, on, on the Lord, it draws us above the roller coaster so that our emotions can be significantly more consistent and our spiritual life can be significantly more consistent. And Lord willing, there's always a general trend upward with emotions and such. I mean, they can, there can be dips. You notice there's a little bit of a wave there, but the general trend is upward. And if you aren't living this way, may I put this simply? You're missing out on what God has given to you in this life. I think I mentioned that last week as well. God has provided, if you are a born-again believer, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and, and remember, this all founds on that. You're a sinner. You cannot get yourself to heaven. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot buy your way to heaven. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And because he died on the cross, he was buried and he rose again the third day. He purchased for you eternal life so that you can be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him again. And the Bible says that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And if you've done that this morning so that you are in Christ and you are a born-again believer then this is what God has provided for you in this life. He has already made provision for joy if you will take it. It's a perspective issue. It's a faith issue. It's not a circumstances issue. Our definition is this. Biblical joy is a deep and genuine delight rooted in a recognition of God's presence and power in one's life and in the lives of others, produced by the power of the Holy Spirit as he manifests himself in the life of a born-again believer, found by walking in the Spirit through a consistent personal relationship with Jesus Christ by submission and obedience. Be right with God. See things as an extension of God. Have faith in God. And find joy. Let's close in prayer.